0: Good morning again. Well, I'm happy you're here. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. All that means is you guys were so happy greeting and talking to one another. It was easy to ignore me, and that's fine. That's fine. Um, This morning, uh, we're looking in the Old Testament. We're taking a break from our study through... Uh, Jesus' life and ministry. We just got done with Jesus' parables, and uh, that, that has been so equipping and encouraging for my own life and heart. Uh, Jesus is such a master teacher. I will, it will never get old meditating on his words, on his teachings. And uh, so today, this morning, we're going to look at uh, the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to be in Judges. Uh, and I thought I would illustrate and kind of begin introduce this idea with something that we all understand, and there was actually a personal illustration with this. Uh, I will never forget, uh, just not too long ago, after I moved here to Kansas, I saw a social media post about Sean Weiss, the uh, Goldberg from the Mighty Ducks. Anybody ever watched The Mighty Ducks the movie? Has anybody ever seen that? There's a few, I was an 80s kid, so this was a movie, I'm not, I'm not saying you should all watch it, I, I can't remember what was in it, but uh, I do remember watching it and it being like a classic, this was a big movie, and they, sh- they showed Sean Weiss, this was of course years ago, decades ago, and uh, some years ago they showed another picture, this was the social media post, uh, this is his mug shot. And uh, this was actually a better picture than the other picture, but it's Sunday morning, and I didn't want to scare you guys, so I didn't show the the original one they came out with. But it shocked everyone. It went viral. Uh, It's one of those posts that people stop, and they're so shocked because they don't understand what happened to him. And as this was going viral and everybody was talking about this guy that we all knew, the big question from all of them, was how did he get there? How do you go from being a Hollywood star to a homeless drug addict in prison? How do you go from this to that, from here to there, from better to worse? And that really sets up the context of the Old Testament story we're going to look at today in Judges chapter 3. So, if you are in Judges, we're actually, I'm going to begin with Judges chapter 2, giving a little bit of the context of the story. The truth is, this, this can happen to any of us. Uh, you know, I, I spent years in addiction recovery, and the one thing I learned is, every human being has an addiction. Now, different di- addictions have different consequences. Not all of them are brought on by the same things, but we all have habits habits and temptations and hindrances, things that we're addicted to, that we give into, that we feed into, whether it be fear or anger or drugs or food or I, the list can go on. Anything that affects our physical and emotional well-being about, uh, you know, John, the Apostle John calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Anything that feels good, makes us good or looks good, we are going to be drawn to and uh, and I remember being in this, these, uh, these meetings, we'd have group time, we, we'd get away from major time, we'd go to group time, and I remember thinking, I need this. I have addictions in my life I wasn't even aware of until I started talking about them. And, uh, and I've also had addictions I'm, I was aware of. But uh, the truth of the matter is, any of us can find us in the wrong spot. All of us have the potential of going in the wrong direction and getting to a place that we stop and look and say, What got me here? That people that care about us would say, How did you get from A to Z? How did you end up in this worst situation? And it all starts somewhere. And that's the context of judges that we're going to think about today because throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, these patterns are consistent. (coughs) There are certain characteristics that we can find within our own lives that bring us from one point to a worse point. And we're going to look back at God's people. This is more than 3,000 years ago in the time of the judges. It was a dark time in Israel's history, uh, and it has a lot to teach us about how we can lose our way with God and find ourselves in bondage and defeat. Do you know that anybody in this room, all of us, any one of us, can end up a place we don't want to really be in. Any of us. We can put ourselves in a situation in which people would ask, How did you get here? So uh, I'm sure you're turned to Judges. Uh, let me give you a little, a little context uh, in case you're not good with the history of, of the Old Testament. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the, in the Bible. It's the seventh book. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible. That's the law, the Torah, you know, the, the first, the Pentateuch, the first five books, And those books, we believe, are written by Moses, and they they start in the beginning of creation, and they go through uh, a lot of the life of Moses, and how Moses, if you know him, he brought the people out of slavery from Egypt. And so if you were looking at a date, and you were being internally consistent with the Bible, around 1446 B.C. is when Moses led the captives out of Egypt and into, uh, or to Mount Sinai. He led them out of captivity in 1446 B.C. Then they spent how many years in the wilderness? Forty. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around because they were disobedient. You remember Joshua and Caleb. You remember the spies. You remember they were uh, disciplined for 40 years. That generation died out because they didn't trust God. They did not put their faith in God, and so for 40 years... They were being kept out of the promised land, but God still loved them, and He still, you know, their sandals didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. He supernaturally helped them because He still loved them and cared about them, but they weren't allowed to go in the promised land, and Moses wasn't either. So in 1406 B.C., 40 years later, after 1446, Moses dies, and who ends up leading the people into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua. Joshua, when you read his story, he lived to be 110 years old. He was uh, with Moses. He was old enough to be with Moses. He should have died off, so he was over 20 when the people rebelled in 1446. So Moses is the next leader. He ends up taking over in 1406 B.C., and the history goes from 1406 to 1350. It's about 56 years. Joshua led the Israelites in conquering the land of Canaan. Now, in that 56 years, they did not conquer the entire land. They did not remove all the nations like God told them. God told them, don't leave anybody here. They will be a hindrance to you. They will lead you astray. You will get distracted. You will get in. And guess what? You are going to get to a place you don't want to go. You are going to end up in a situation you don't want to be in. If you don't get rid of these pagan nations and their false gods. But did the people do that? Well, they almost did that for about 56 years. And that brings us to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapters 1 and 2 are like a summary and a precursor of the entire time of the period of Judges. Uh, so I'll read in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. This is about 1350 BC. Uh, and this is near where Joshua dies. So, the people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. That's about 1406 to 1350. And during, the lifetimes, and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Then verse 10. That whole generation... Was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, and this is what's important, after them another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. And then if you read the rest of Judges chapter 2, you get the 300 years of what we call the period of the judges. So from 1350 B.C. to about 1050 B.C., about 300 years, you have the time of the judges. There's about 12 judges there. There's a 13 judge once you get to 1 Samuel. But you have about 300 years that is this description. After Joshua and the elders of Joshua, after just two generations, the people were not following the Lord for 300 years, and they were they had to endure what's called the cycle of apostasy apostasy if you're not used to churchy words like that that means like living a lifestyle of sin they were continuously going the wrong direction and living in sin and the question here's the question what happened how did they go from being god's people to Conquering the land to doing, being the people of God, conquering Ai and and Jericho. How did they go from being victorious and faithful and effective, a nation that followed God? How did they go from a God-fearing, God-following, God-blessed nation to a people that was miserable and defeated and constantly, repeatedly put into bondage? The answer to that question has an answer for us because we can be led into bondage and captivity and defeat in our own lives because these principles don't just end with judges. They're through the entire Bible, all the way to Revelation, these characteristics of a nation uh, continue throughout the Bible. So, uh, So here's the questions for us. This is the practical application once we get into judges. What has the power to draw us away from God? What is the power to draw you away, to get you from here to there, a place you don't want to go? And what characteristics or habits does one generation need to lead a nation into bondage and defeat? The Lord, After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works He had done for Israel. It took two generations to change an entire people group for 300 years. What does it take? Well, the Bible actually tells us. As you read Judges, you see the same thing over and over, and it can apply to us today. Uh, so we're going to look at that. So turn to Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Judges 3, verse 7. I'll read 3, 7, and 8. This is the first judge. Judges 1 and 2 is like a precursor and a summary, kind of like Genesis 1 and 2 before you get to chapter 3. It's, it's like that. It's a Genesis, or judges 2 tells the rest of the whole book of Judges. But Genesis 3, 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. That's their spiritual condition. That's how they were. They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God, and they worshiped the, you could say, Baal. That's like the most natural, that's the Hebrew way of saying it, Baal. or Some people say Baal because it's easier. Some people say Baal to mix the two. It's just a mixture. In in the language, it sounds like Baal, but you can say Baal or Baal. Baal, and no one knows the difference. So, uh, so, they forgot the Lord their God, and they worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He sold them to King Cushan rishathaim and Aram Naharaim, and the Israelites served Him eight years." So you see the spiritual condition of this generation that grew up after Joshua that did not know the Lord or the works of the Lord. They did not follow him. And the question we would be asking is, how did they get there? How did we get a snapshot of Israel being victorious superstars and the next picture was a mugshot of them in captivity being miserable and defeated? How did they get there? Well, let's just break down the verses. Number one. They did not fear God. They did not fear God. They were fearless. We see that in the first part of verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. What does that mean? This is actually repeated throughout the Old Testament. You get this phrase. They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. What does that mean? Well, there's two implications. Of course, everything has one meaning, but there's two ways in which you see this. Number one, they did what was evil according to God, meaning they did what God said was evil. So if you said they did what was evil in the Lord's sight, it means in God's sight, what He said is evil. That's, he says this is not right. They did what was evil according to God, meaning they didn't care what He said. That was their issue. They didn't care what God had said. If you look back at Judges 2, it gives us the whole story. They had the first five books of the Bible. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Joshua had been written. It wasn't as commonly known as the first five books, but they had at least the first five, really the first six books of the Bible. They had Leviticus. They had Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had where the people were miraculously saved. They were punished. They were rebuked. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me, don't make any idols, don't use the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath day, honor your mother and father, and on and on. They had all the law, but they didn't know it. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They didn't care what God had said. They didn't know God's words, so they didn't respect His authority, and they did what was evil. Second, they did what was evil right in front of Him meaning they didn't care what he saw. So the second part of this is when you say they did what was evil in the Lord's sight, they did what he said was evil and they did evil right in front of him. Have you ever been at the store and some kid just does something really naughty right in front of their parents and you go, oh, I mean, doing it in secret is one thing, but how can you be so brazen to disrespect and dishonor your parent right in front of them? Don't you have a fear of your parents? Don't you respect them? Don't you know what they're going to do? Like, man, I would have, whew, I'm glad it ain't me. When I was growing up, I know it was different. I think it's illegal now. But, uh, <laughs> but I was disciplined. I mean, shoes, uh, those little matchbox car, machi- you know, micro That you know, the... You know the, the, the racetracks? Yeah, the rubber ones, the ones that are, yeah, whew, I got whipped with those so many times. Uh, yeah, it hurts, it hurts. And uh, anyway, you can't do that anymore, it's illegal, you go to jail. But, uh, I'm, and, you know, good, we don't do that. Anyway, uh, they did what was evil in the Lord's sight, meaning they did it right in front of His eye view. They knew that He was there. The culture of this day, when they thought about gods, and everyone was uh, pluralistic. They, they believed in many gods. Uh, when they did something in the land, this is what they thought. I'm doing this in front of the god that's in this land. Uh, every, every god was attributed to a geographical location, and everybody was pluralistic. So you believe like this god is over this in here, in this land, with these people. That's why if you read through the Old Testament, you read, oh, do you think like in... Uh, In Isaiah, when he's like, do you think your God's going to save you? No way. Uh, None of these other gods saved these nations in these places. Your God over your place isn't going to save you. And so when they would do something against the God of that land or gods of that land, they would know they're doing it in front of them. But if you go outside of that land, that God doesn't necessarily know. Uh, That's why uh, King Darius, the king of Persia, when he sends the Israelites back to their land, oh, by the way, he also made a decree to send back everybody, the Assyrians and the Babylonians captured and put into a foreign land. He sent everyone back to their hometowns. There's in the British uh, Museum, there's an, um, this artifact where it talks about uh, how King Cyrus, the decree, Cyrus, the decree he gave was for everybody to go back to their homeland. Also, there that you can read is he told them, and when you go back to your land, Will you tell your gods to tell my gods about who I am? Would you basically put a good word in for me so that your gods will tell my gods? The way they understood multiple gods is that the gods would share with one another, but they were limited to their own land. So when it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord, if you were reading this 3,300 and whatever years ago, when you would read this, you would think, oh, They did what the God of that land said not to do, right in front of them, like a kid disobeying right in front of the principal or the parent or whatever. And so this idea of doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord means you don't care what God says, you don't care what that God said, and you also don't care that that God sees you. So this is brazen sinfulness. Uh, They didn't care. They had no fear of of doing wrong. And it's one of the thematic phrases in the book of Judges. Now, it's only repeated a handful of times, but everybody agrees, looking at the book of Judges, this 300-year span, this phrase characterizes the entire period of the Judges, and it's also the last sentence in the book of Judges. It's the last thing that the Judges says, and it really pictures the whole time, and it's in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days? What days? the time of the judges, which spans about 300 years, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what they felt was best. Everyone. They didn't care what God said. They didn't follow the law, and they didn't care that he saw. If he's up there, he doesn't care. He's not in this thing with us. We're going to do whatever we thought is right. The reason why I say they did not fear God is because this is the definition of fearing God. To fear God is to care about what He says and to care about what He sees. That's why when people talk about fearing God, they don't say, are you afraid of God? He's going to get you. That's not what they mean when you talk about fearing God. However, you should fear God if you're not a believer. You should be very much afraid of God. But to fear God means, if you know who God is, you care about what he has said, and you care about what he sees. You care about what he sees you doing in secret, in private. That's what a healthy fear of the Lord is. You fear him, you revere him, you respect him. That's why Proverbs states, Proverbs 16:6, 6, By mercy and truth, atonement, atonement is made for wrongdoing. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. It's fear that keeps you away from evil, according to the Word of God, which means they did not fear God, and that's why they did what was evil in the God's sight. So here's the question we should ask ourselves and be honest with yourself. This is something between you and the Holy Spirit. Do you fear God? Do you fear Him? Do you care about what He has said? Do you care about what He sees? When we hide what we're doing, when we think our sins are private, here's the reality. We've already got shackles on our feet taking us to a place we don't want to be. And God loves us, and He wants us to know what He has said. He wants us to know that He's present with us to motivate us not to be afraid of Him, but to respect Him and work with Him, to honor Him, to obey Him, to follow Him. Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fearlessness leads to foolishness. Foolishness leads to bondage and defeat. And that's something that anybody that's ever been in bondage and defeated before could tell you. I know what it's like to not fear consequences, to not fear God. I know what it's like to become foolish. I know what it's like to be led into bondage and defeat. Because I've given in to my temptations. I've, been, I've given in to my addictions. I've given in to these things that promise me success in a future. And it only leaves me in bondage. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge so they did not fear god number 2 they didn't remember god they they didn't they didn't they didn't remember him they were forgetful they were fearless and they were forgetful verse 7 the israelites did what was evil in the lord's sight they forgot the lord their god and worshiped the baals and the asherahs now here's a question how did they forget god how could they forget him god did a miraculous work. He parted the sea. He led them out of slavery. He the ten plagues were his way of showing power over the dry land, the waters, and the heavens. All the gods, the pantheon, the, the many gods that Egyptian that the Egyptians shared, that they believed in, they were led out of captivity, and God overcame these gods. How did they forget? How did they forget the 40 years in the in the wilderness where their shoes, their sandals didn't wear out, and their their clothes didn't wear out, and there was manna from heaven, just like dew on the ground. They could go out for six days a week and and collect all their food. It's the ultimate grace. How did they forget all those things? I don't know. Maybe maybe they were they were busy. Maybe they were busy. Maybe it was their schedule. Maybe they had too much going on. Maybe they were so busy that they they weren't able to do. Do you know that they had Deuteronomy chapter 6? It's called the Shema. Shema means to hear, to listen. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, there's this this phrase that the Israelites would repeat multiple times a year uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it talks about teaching your children all the time when you're sitting, when you're standing, when you're walking by the way, when you're going to bed at night, all the time, share God's truth with them. But this generation, according to Judges 2 verses 7 through 10, according to the rest of the Judges, they did not pass on their faith. They did not share God's truth with them. What what diverted them? What distracted them? In Judges chapter 3, verse 1, it won't be on the screen uh, if you have your Bibles, Judges 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan, a.k.a. God allowed the pagans to stay in the same towns as God's people. And then you get to verse 4. Why? Verse 4, this will be on the screen. The Lord left them to test Israel, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands He had given their ancestors through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves. They gave their own daughters to their sons and worshiped their gods. Here's the story in this passage. God's people integrated with non-believers and what they wanted to do, uh, something that God specifically told them not to do, and they wanted to enjoy the land more than they wanted to share their faith. They wanted to enjoy the land that they just got more than they wanted to share their faith. So, Here's another way of saying it. If you were there 3,400 years ago, what happened? How did you get here? Here's how, here's how the, just within two, na- two generations, here's the, how they got there. Mommies and daddies did not share their faith uh, with their kids. They were more concerned about enjoying the land than sharing their faith. They didn't remove the false gods. They decided we'll just all integrate and work with it. Maybe the Israelites thought that somebody else would train them. We don't know. All we do know is they didn't pass on the stories of God's faithfulness, and that left their kids faithless. If you don't pass on the truth of God's faithfulness, your kids will, re- will be left faithless. And so here's a practical application uh, with verse, I think it's 6. What do we invite into our home? what do we invite into our family? Or here's a better way of saying it, what do we marry our kids to? What do we give our family to? Because it only took two generations for an entire people group to be left with nothing, to be left in bondage and defeat. And that could happen to us. That can happen to this community. That can happen to our people. That can definitely happen to America as a nation. That can happen to us. That even happens to churches. If you read uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, God sends letters to seven churches, real churches in that time. He sends letters to them and tells them, If you don't change this, you will end up defeated and in bondage. I will remove my lampstand from you. I will remove the Holy Spirit from you. You will not be fruitful. You will not be faithful. I will let your church die. God actually lets churches die. And it's not because he's mean or unloving, it's because they are unfaithful and unwilling to change. And so God tells us over and over again, if, if you want to live without me, against my word, not passing on your faith, I will allow you to get what you really want. And uh, what is it that you really want? You can know what you really want. What do you invite into your home? What do you marry your kids to? Uh, what do you offer sacrifices to? What do you give your, your money, your energy, your attention, your time to? That's what it is that's going to draw you away from God. So they did not fear God. Uh, they were fearless. They did not remember God. They were forgetful. And number three, they did not worship God. They were unfaithful. And this really hits home to us as a people in our culture today. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They for, forgot the Lord their God, and they worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, Baal is the god, the false god that represents the storm god, the, the god of the rain, which is really significant when you get to Elijah, which is after this time, uh, but Elijah and the rain for three and a half years. And the way that they would worship Baal, because he's known as, as, with different names throughout the Old Testament time, he's known by different names, the way that they would worship him is they would offer their firstborn child as a sacrifice, So what a family would do is they would take their firstborn and they would offer their firstborn up as a sacrifice uh, to this false god and they would burn the sacrifice and it would be as a blessing to the rest of their family. So the rest of the brothers and sisters in that time uh, would be blessed. Now this is significant Baal, the, why, the reason why he's considered the top false god, or maybe El is considered the false top god, but El is either consider, considered as Baal or Baal's dad, and it just depends on which era and which country you're talking about in, uh, in ancient Near Eastern literature, how do they view him? But Baal would be worshipped by sacrificing your, your firstborn son to Now, isn't it interesting that the devil would work it out that way? Why? Because that is the opposite. That is the complete perversion of what God was planning to do for us. God is the one who offered up as a sacrifice his firstborn son so that you and I could be blessed and forgiven. And so any false God out there is promising a perversion of what God already promises us. So think of any false idol. All it's doing is saying, if you sacrifice to me... I will make you happy. I will bring you pleasure. I will fulfill you. I will satisfy you. And what they're promising is something that God has already promised to us. From Baal to all the other false gods there are out there, whether it's prosperity or vegetation or sex or money or children or blessing, you name it, they all say that if you give in to the false god, they will satisfy you and they never do. And so... Baal, they would offer sacrifices to Baal. There's actually a place, it's in the New Testament, it's Gehenna. It's a particular place that starts at a gate and goes down a valley Uh, they would offer their burnt sacrifices to. And so that's Baal. And they worship the Baals, because there's many in that grouping of gods, and then the Asherahs. Uh, Asherah was like the female goddess. If you've ever heard of the Asherah poles, like in the New Testament, in Ephesus, on Mars, Hill, a different place. When you look at um, uh, the Temple of Diana, all these are, are related. The Asherah was Baal's counterpart, and people worshipped her by going to a, to a high hill, and there would be a totem pole that's an explicit symbol of physical intimacy, and they would go up on the hill, and they would interact with cult prostitutes. That's how they worshipped. It was gross immorality, and they did this in the land of Jerusalem, in the land of Canaan. They they would offer up worship to these false gods while also worshiping the one true God. And you might think, this is crazy. How could these people do this? Well, do people still do this today? Do people still do this today? There's not one commercial that doesn't appeal to the Asherahs. There, there's not one streaming channel that doesn't have sexual immorality as its ultimate bait to tie people in. Kids, sexual morality of uh, how is sexuality viewed in the Bible? Uh, male and female, that's it. Male and female. How is marriage viewed? Marriage is a male and female together, united. That's the only right, proper way of sexual intimacy. And the, God's people decided, we're going to step outside of that. And that's true today. Sexual immorality is a plague that's poisoning and distorting God's people today. And it's on every high heel. It's in every store. It's on every commercial. It's in every movie. It's, it's in anything you can think about. Even literature for kids, they put it in there. Why? Because people are still worshiping this false god today. They just don't call it Asherah anymore. They just they call it a different name, but it's the same plague we have today. And it's not just in the world, it's in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and this is what he says. What am I saying then? They've just been talking about meat sacrificed to idols. What am I saying then? That food, or your translation probably says meat, the actual word is meat. That meat sacrificed to idols is anything Or that an idol is anything? Verse 19, he's saying, What am I saying that false gods exist? Like Thor is out there somewhere? Or Baal's a real uh, god of the rain or something? Paul's saying, Am I trying to say that there are other gods out there? No. Verse 20, I'm not saying that those gods are actually real, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons false gods are just fallen angels. They've always been that way. Baal, Dagon, all those false gods of the Old Testament, some of them are the same god, just different names in different places, all those false gods are just fallen angels, demons that are trying to draw people away from worshiping God. They don't care what you worship or who you worship as long as you don't worship the one true God. That is their mission, that's their anger, that's their drive. And so False gods are still an issue today, and even in the church, according to 1 Corinthians. And Paul's saying, I'm not saying that false gods are real in the sense of there's powerful beings out there trying to do this. They're just demons, and the church is still sacrificing to them, and I don't want you to be ignorant and participate in that if you know better. I want you to understand what it is. So, what would be our, our false worship today? Uh, I thought of the word meat. I know this translation uses food. It's the word meat, M-E-A-T. Here's our meat sacrifice to idols today in America. Four words, M-E-A-T. Money, energy, attention, time. Whatever you sacrifice and put before God in those four areas is what you would likely normally offer up as a sacrifice to a false god. Money, energy, attention, and time. That's what we normally sacrifice to false gods, things that are not really God in order to get from them. So, and notice how God responds. It's true in the church. It was true back then. Verse 8, The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He sold them to King Cushan rishathaim of Aram Naharaim, and the Israelites served Him eight years. Now, this verse was meant... It was intended to make the Jews upset. We read this in in the book of Romans when when Paul says, And God did this with the Gentiles to make you upset. Verse 8 is meant to be upsetting. God's people were not following him, so what did he do? He sold them to the king of Cush. Does anybody know who this is? You've probably never seen his profile, you don't know who this is. This was the pagan nation around the Israelites and they were worse than the Israelites. They were more wicked and evil. The name Kushan Rishathayim, that, that last part, that Hebrew word, Rishathayim means doubly evil or doubly wicked, twice as evil is what that name, name means. So when, when Judges is being shared and read to the people, what he's saying is God decided to use a people group that's even more sinful than you are to discipline you. And the Jews, if you read Habakkuk, this is Habakkuk's issue. If you read Malachi, this is throughout the prophets. You want to know what made the Jews really mad when God would punish them? They got really upset when he would use people that are worse than they are to punish them. That's why Habakkuk was like, wait a minute. And God's like, I'm doing something that you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. And he's using the Babylonians to punish the Israelites. Now, you may think, I can't relate to that. I bet you could. I bet you could. What if you found out that God was going to use anti-Jesus terrorists to punish this land? Anti-God, anti-Jesus people to punish America. Some people might get proud and say, but America is a Christian nation and we do all these good things. And it's true. You know that America as a country gives more to charity than any other country in the world. We we do we give away more than any other ch- country not just per capita but just period. Now that's slowly changing today, but that's true. We give away resources. What we don't seem to be giving away is Christians. What we seem to be missing is making disciples. We're great with giving our money. What we don't do is share pass on our faith. And now America, Christianity in America, is declining at a rapid rate. We are not making disciples. If we're not careful, we could be, verse 8, unrealizing it, that although we're giving as much as we can to the world, what we're not giving them is believers, which is what they need, which was what the Israelites, that's the very problem they had. Within two generations, they did not pass on their faith to the second generation. There were no disciples. They didn't know God and they didn't know the works of God. And the question for us is, is that true for us? Are we fearing God? Are we remembering God? Are we worshiping God? How are we doing in passing our faith? The the Jews would get upset that God would use the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Cushites, whoever it is. He would use all these, the Philistines, they really hated them because they had five major cities on the western coast of what's supposed to be the Promised Land. They got so upset that God would use pagan nations to punish them. And you know what? People haven't changed. We would be upset if God used more evil, wicked people than we are to punish us. And why would he do that? Because pagans don't represent God. The church is meant to. God's people, the Israelites, were meant to. He was upset with them, but they didn't bear God's name. You know who bears God's name now? We do. We are the church. We're meant to go be the church. We are meant to pass on our faith. We are meant to share with our kids and our grandkids. We are meant to share with our neighbors and loving them as ourselves. We are meant to go and share the good news with everyone around us. And it starts at home, including home. We were meant for this. Pagans don't represent God, but we do. When Jesus flipped over tables and made a whip and got upset, why was he angry? And anger is not a sin. Righteous anger is when you're angry about people misrepresenting and not following God. Unrighteous anger is when you're just defending yourself. That's a summary. I know there's nuances to all that. Why would Jesus be so angry with the people that he would do something, he'd make a big show of it? Because this is at the temple and he said, You're making my father's house a den of thieves. You guys are meant to represent God to the whole world, to all the Gentiles. And they come here and all they see is money and greed and immorality. You're just as sinful as they are. You just bear the name of God. And that's why he would be upset today when you read Revelation. God would be righteously angry if we say we follow God, but we don't pass on our faith. We're not representing Him and bearing His image. So what led them out? Number four. They cried out to God and he raised up a deliverer. Now this is still true today, but we have to look at it in the Old Testament because it's the passage. Verse 9, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. They cried out to God. Here's the question Whatever happened to desperation? Whatever happened to people crying out to the Lord? humbling themselves, uh, tearing their clothes, putting on ashes. Whatever happened to people fasting? Whatever happened to people being desperate for God, desperate for Him? I need you to deliver us. I need you to save us. We need your help. Desperation comes before deliverance. All throughout the Bible, deliverance does not come before desperation. Desperation comes first. God allowed the people to endure this cycle of apostasy, as the church calls it, this cycle of sinning, and then affliction, and then repentance, and then deliverance. He would send these judges only after they would repent, after they would be desperate. Desperation comes before deliverance. It might be on a screen eventually. So the Lord raised up a deliverer, Caleb's younger brother Othniel. He feared God. And uh, what's really cool about uh, Othniel. Othniel is, uh, is Caleb's younger brother. Does anybody know what the name Caleb means? Just curious. Dog. Did someone say dog? It means dog. Now you might think, oh, I don't want to be called a dog. When I was a teenager, we called each other dog, but it was two G's. Uh, I don't want to be called dog. Well, he's not talking about a hairy, don't let him get wet, he'll stink animal. A dog was considered loyal. Caleb's younger brother is named Othniel. Do you know what Othniel means? I'll tell you. It means the Lion of God. Now, I think it's providence. I think God orchestrated all this. The first judge, the first deliverer of God's people is the Lion of God. And you know what's true for us as believers? That is our deliverer today. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation chapter 5. You read about the lion of Judah that enters into uh, the heavenly court. Everybody stops. They see this Savior, this sacrificial lamb, and they say, No one's able to open the scroll. I'll I'll read it to you as we as we end. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. I know I'm not preaching on Revelation, but here's just a synopsis. The scroll and the seven seals, this was God's plan of redemption, Him saving the world and people from every tribe and nation. So that's you can go back and study Revelation all you want. That's what he means. That's the scroll and the seals. No one's able to fulfill God's plan to save the world. No one can do it. No one's righteous. No one can forgive their sins. No one can atone for them. It's over. And then an angel tells John, don't cry. I want you to see. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he opens the scroll. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent to all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. By the way, if you know anything about this culture, for someone to come and take the scroll, this plan out of the king's hand is a big deal. and We can preach about that. Anyway, verse 8. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So there's 24 elders. Elders of the word presbyteros. So, so there's 24 Presbyterians just right around the, the throw. They all fall down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The, these are God's people asking for God to fulfill his mission, to save his people. Uh, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. What does that mean? You are worthy to fulfill God's mission in saving the world. Only you can do this. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what the scroll said. This is what God's mission is to, to, to save all the people. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. God is still delivering today. And here's the questions put together. Do you fear God? Are you remembering Him? Are you passing on your faith? Are you worshiping Him? That is the only way for us to not end in the wrong place. To be in the wrong place at the wrong time is is an overstatement. Really, we can lead ourselves to the wrong place. We can get there if we don't fear God and remember Him and worship Him. But if that is you, and you say, this is me, I'm a sinner, you can be delivered. Because there is a lion that is delivering people from bondage and defeat today. And his name is Jesus. And he was worthy enough to fulfill God's plan to save sinners like you and me from our sin. And no matter what you've done, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how far into bondage you feel like you are, Jesus can deliver you right now, today. So let's pray, and if that's you and you want to give your life to God and say, God, I need you to save me, you just say, God, save me. Uh, The gospel is clear. We have a creator. He made us in his image. We don't follow him. We sin. The wages of sin is death. Our punishment for sin is death. We stay separated from God. It's separation from God. But God has a plan. That plan was Jesus. He sent his son 2,000 years ago to live a sinless life. He never sinned. Then he dies on a cross. Three days later, he was risen from the dead. He rose from the dead showing, I can defeat death and sin. I can forgive you of everything you've done. I can save your soul. And if you would just turn to him in repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn to God and say, God, I don't want my sin. I want you. That doesn't mean you're never going to sin. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you've cleaned up your life. All it means is you know and believe in your heart. I don't want to sin against God. What I really want is to belong to him. If you turn to him in repentance and faith, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, you can be saved. So let's pray. Father, thank you for being a deliverer, the Lion of Judah, the one who came to save and deliver, to seek and to save that which is lost, which we all were born in sin. Every person in this room deserves separation and death. And by your grace and your mercy, you have sent your Son to save us from our sins, to save us from the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that really belongs to us. You stood in our place. You took all the penalty of death to make us your sons and daughters. Thank you for being a gracious God. Would you do that amongst our people? Would you help us to remember you, to fear you, to worship you, to pass on our faith? You are our deliverer. Our only hope is you. So we cry out in desperation to you, if you don't come and save, if you don't gift us with your spirit, if you don't move in this place, we have no hope. Please don't remove your lampstand. Don't remove your spirit. Help us to follow you, to know you, to fear you, to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.